And in, in this sermon series that we've been in over the past few weeks, um, I have been on a journey with Abraham. I hope that you've been on a journey with Abraham, a journey of faith in the Lord. And I'll tell you what I've been remembering, perhaps, or learning, uh, is how God keeps making these grand promises to Abraham. Fabulous, mind-blowing promises. And yet Abraham does not have the capacity to imagine what God is saying to him. Abraham lacks the vision to understand it. And, and uh, even though Abraham is a very old man by this time, he still can't get it, you know? Uh, it takes more than just the passing of years to have that capacity. It takes experience with God on this journey of faith. And as Abraham's experience of God grows, so does his holy imagination. For every, every encounter that Abraham has with God widens his vision for getting what God has been promising to him from the very beginning. God's promise was always enormous. Abraham's perception, on the other hand, gets bigger and bigger, better and better as the story goes on. And I think it's the same for us. This is what I've been figuring out for myself. But the Lord Jesus promises to make all things new. But what does that even mean when you start out following Him? Come follow me. He says, come and see. We'll find out together. Come on, let's walk this journey together. We step out onto the road with Him. And the most that we can imagine in terms of all things new, is probably Jesus is going to be a band-aid for my boo-boos. You know? <laughs> That's where it starts. Uh, but the more that we journey with Him, the greater our capacity to see the kingdom of God, the greater our capacity to imagine where this whole thing is going. Our vision gets bigger and bigger, better and better. And importantly, the more we see things God's way, the less we are prone to chafe at God's ways. The more we see things God's way, the less we chafe at God's ways. In fact, we may end up rejoicing and singing and even laughing at what God is doing. That's what we'll be looking at as we take a look at Abraham's story, this next installment of his story. As we turn to that, let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for these old stories that are so formative. We pray that you'll speak to us through this one today. Send your spirit upon us. Waken us and, and speak to us and guide us and expand our vision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I, as I walk through these chapters, Genesis 17 and 18, and then on to the gospel lesson, I want to make several points. That First of all, God promises better. God promises better than our best happily ever afters. God promises more than just our personal solutions. And God promises great news. Good news of great joy, happy news that will bring us to laughter. So first of all, God promises better than our best happily, happily ever afters. Abraham was 75 years old when this story started. He has been on this journey of faith with the Lord. In today's passage, Genesis 17, he's 99 years old. That's 24 years an adult believer following 
the Lord. One would think that by this time his scope of vision would be enormous. He would really be getting what God is up to. But in fact, his, his vision is still rather small. And in today's passage, God's promise is accompanied by a huge, challenging responsibility. And so, as we'll see in a moment, Abraham comes back to God with a counteroffer. He doesn't like what God is proposing, and he makes a counteroffer. Let's begin with God's promise. God's promise, uh, he says, in a year's time, he will return, and Abraham and Sarah, his old wife, will have a child together in their old age. But before God's promise comes to pass, Abraham has a challenging responsibility. Something painful, embarrassing, counterintuitive, if not downright bizarre. Abraham has to be the pioneer for the covenant of circumcision. We talked about this a little last week. It's not just for Abraham, it's also for his, his son Ishmael, it's for his lieutenant Eliezer of Damascus, for all the men and boys in his whole entourage, probably 500 of them by now, all of them have to go under the knife. How does Abraham respond? God's promise sounds amazing, too amazing, frankly. It's a little crazy. It's impossible. How could this old man and this old woman make a little baby? Um, that, that's crazy. And then beyond that, the responsibility sounds excruciating, so Abraham makes God a counteroffer. Look at Genesis 17, 17 and 18. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? So Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. It is not the case that Abraham is without faith. He is a believer. He has been for 24 years. He has been on this journey with God all of these years. They've been through a lot together. The problem isn't with his faith per se. It's with his capacity to understand, to see what God is doing. Abraham lacks capacity for a holy imagination. He's like a first-time homeowner shopping the housing market, and he comes upon a fixer-upper. And he walks in, and he looks around, and all he can envision is maybe a fresh coat of paint here, maybe some new appliances, some new furniture, that's it. Contrast that with someone who's been doing this for a while, who's bought and, and fixed up a few houses. We have a lot of them in this church. <laughs> Uh, contrast that with someone who is able to walk into a fixer-upper and say, oh, we can do all kinds of things with this place. We can, we can raise the roof. We can build a deck on top of it. We can dig down below. We can build a tunnel. <laughs> we can do a patio. Let's turn the whole building this way. And pretty soon, they're on the cover of Southern Living. You know, it's, it's a great show home because of their capacity for, for vision, right? Abraham's not there yet. He's still like that first-time home buyer. He simply can't imagine what's possible, and especially what God can do. And so, he laughs. 
He laughs. He, he laughs at God. And he says, having a son with Sarah is absurd. She's past menopause, evidently. He's not doing too well either in that category. So he laughs to himself at God's harebrained scheme. And then, instead of allowing God to expand his vision, he tries to shrink God's vision down to his size. Look at what he does in verse 18. Lord, look. See, I already have this other son. Remember, his name is Ishmael, which means, may God hear. I named him that because I was hoping that you might hear and grant me my happily ever after dream. My dream is to allow Ishmael to be the son of the promise. I know this isn't the way that you wanted to do it, God, but frankly, your solution simply won't work. It's crazy. It's too late for me and Sarah. And we are wasting valuable time. I need to get everything on my checklist checked off before I die. So can't you use Ishmael? Can't you just accept my solution and call it good enough? It's Abraham's counteroffer. It's a smaller vision, shrinking it down. And I wonder if this sounds familiar. It's very familiar to me. I, I do this with God. I wonder if you do it with God as well. I come to Him with predetermined expectations, a wish list of what I want Him to do. Instead of allowing God to expand my vision, I try to shrink His down to my size. Help me get this done, Lord, particularly when God gives me a challenging responsibility. But as I look back, I shudder to think what would have happened if God had done what I asked, if he had granted my checklist, my happily ever after checklist that say when I was 16 years old. Imagine how terrible that would be. I would be married to the homecoming queen, I would be driving a Camaro, I would be the lead guitar for Journey, <laughs> and I think I would be eating a pizza hut every night. It's terrible. It's so stupid, isn't it? And, 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 and that's what we will get if we talk God out of his vision in favor of ours. And you just look back a few years and realize how petty it is a lot of times, how silly it is. Thankfully, God is determined to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. And look what he says to Abraham in verse 19. He says, no. The Hebrew word there means no. <laughs> he says no. Uh, or maybe in, in uh, British, rather. <laughs> rather, Sarah, your wife, Sarah, he says, rather, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac, which means he laughs. And that should be a happy reminder to you that my ways are higher than your ways. My happily ever after, far exceeds your checklist. And so my covenant will be with Isaac, who will be born to you at this time next year. Don't worry, I will take care of Ishmael as well. He will be a nation as well. It's going to be good for him. I'm going to, I'm going to do you right, Abraham. Don't forget what I've asked you to do. And with that, verse 22, God leaves 
And Abraham is left at a crossroads, a crossroads in his journey of faith. What will he do after 24 years of following the Lord? Will he reject God's larger promise in order to stick to his own happily ever after checklist? Or will he, as Jacob sang to us last week, trust and obey, porque no otro way? Will he trust and obey? If he does, that involves taking a flint knife to the part of his body that is essential for having this baby. Circumcision seems like the last thing he needs. It will also hurt really bad. It wasn't necessary for his dad or for anybody before him. Why is it necessary now? Why now? Why him? Why does God's happily ever after plan require, oftentimes, brutally unhappy deeds? God doesn't tell Abraham why. He doesn't tell us why a lot of times. There are clues in the story. There are clues everywhere through the scriptures. Perhaps the most important one is the Bible's theme of death and resurrection that just keeps on popping up over and over again. We've already encountered it in Genesis. It's huge in the last big story, the story of Noah. After Noah and his family pass through this flood, this story of death and resurrection, God cuts a covenant with Noah. He says, here's the rainbow as a sign. And he says, never again shall all flesh be cut off by floodwaters. So much more we can talk about in this regard. I'm, I'm going to be concise. God calls Abraham now, Abraham and his people, to make a very similar passage from death to life. Circumcision is going to symbolize their passage from death to resurrection by cutting off the foreskin. It's a kind of death. It signifies the end of Abraham's downsized bargain bin vision. It signifies the death of his own virility apart from the Lord. In fact, it signifies death itself, or better, death to self. So that resurrection life, according to God's kingdom and God's ways, might begin in Abraham. We all need this kind of pruning. That's ultimately what circumcision means. It's a kind of pruning. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, Democrats and Republicans, Jesus says to us all, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. As we abide in Jesus and He in us, our Father trims back all the dead branches, all those settling for second best priorities on our happily ever after checklist. And every now and again in our own individual journeys following Jesus, He brings us to another one of these crossroads, crossroad of decision where we have to accept further pruning to continue on the way. We've got too much dead weight so the Father is going to trim that off so that we can continue on. 
and we can see more resurrection in life. I'll never forget this time that I was driving, I had the windows down, I was wrestling with God over something, and I envisioned, I had a vision as I was driving, I didn't wreck, it worked out. Um, I, I, I envisioned what I really wanted from God as a checklist. It was on a spiral-bound notebook, and I had that notebook page in front of me. I was envisioning it. It was on the steering wheel, you know, that H on the Honda. It's right there on, on the front of the steering wheel. And I'm looking at it, and I'm reading through it, and I'm, I'm thinking, these are really petty things in the grand scheme of things. Why am I after these things? And I felt as if the Lord reached in through the car window and tore that page out. He crumpled it up, threw it out the window, and we drove on with a blank slate together. It was a very strange experience, and it changed my life. I took a different course after that encounter with God. And in that moment, I believed that God promises better than my happily ever after. God promises better than my happily ever after. So, verse 22, God departed, and then verse 23, 99-year-old Abraham took another huge leap of faith. He underwent, without anesthesia, the rite of circumcision. That very day, it says, he, his son Ishmael, Eliezer of Damascus, 500 other men and boys in his entourage, all were circumcised because Abraham believed that God promises better than our best happily ever afters. So that's the first point. And secondly, not only does God promise better than our best happily ever afters, but he also promises more than just our personal solutions. Why did Abraham have to keep waiting another minute after circumcision? Why did it go on? Why was there another year? And why did it take 25 years of walking by faith with the Lord for all of this to come to pass? Again, God doesn't tell Abraham why, but there are these clues throughout the story. And, and there are several big ones here in chapter 17 and 18. And the first one has to do with Abraham's bride. Back in chapter 17, verse 6, the Lord changed Abram's name to Abraham. As Jacob said, that goes from daddy to big daddy, or the father of a multitude. And so Abraham, his story continues to be a, a, a story of growth in faith and in scope of vision. Today's lesson begins with the same thing happening to his wife. Her name changes from Sarai, kind of a diminutive, meaning my princess, to Sarah, meaning princess. It's a change of one letter, but it's pretty important because it signifies that she is now royalty in her own right. This story has gotten much bigger. It's not just about him. It's about her, too. She matters to God very much. He's not the only one with a journey of faith with the Lord. She's been walking on this way with God all along. And now God has brought her to the crossroads too. The crossroads of decision. The crossroads for some pruning as well. 
In fact, the whole Ishmael plan was Sarah's idea. And so now it's time for God to expand her vision. She's also got to see that God's promises, God promises better than her best happily ever after. And all this becomes clearer in chapter 18 when Abraham and Sarah host angels unawares. Three angels, including the angel of the Lord, just happen to be passing by Hebron. Abram sees them. He's sitting under the oaks, and he sees them and says, Come on over. Uh, have, have a drink of water. Let me give you a morsel of bread. Verse 5. And then as soon as they agree, he's rushing into the tent. He's like, Quick, Sarah, three measures of flour. Make a hundred cakes. And he runs down to the range and finds the, the best animal he can find. And has his chef cook up hundreds of kebabs. Shawarma, more than anyone can eat. You know, it's just this massive feast that's being prepared. An extraordinary show of hospitality for these three guests. But actually, they are not content just to eat and talk with Abraham, are they? The angel of the Lord wants to talk with Sarah, too. She might prefer otherwise. She might like to hide in the tent. But she gets the spotlight for a large chunk of what we read today. Verse 9, they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, surely I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah's listening at the tent door, right at the threshold. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The appointed time I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. <laughs> she was afraid. And the Lord said, yes, you did. It's hard to know whether this is a playful story or whether this is serious, right? Sarah is laughing. She's laughing nervously. And her teeth are chattering. She knows the power of God. She knows what he can do. And when he says, gotcha, she's afraid. But God hasn't visited her to destroy her. Or at least not all of her. He's come to prune. He's come to prune to trim back that disbelief and to relieve her of having to carry around those quaint happily ever after ideas that she had when she was a teenager. She just needs a little pruning, and all will be well. And in fact, in only a few months, her laughter of disbelief will be transformed into laughter of astonishment. All of this is to say that, God's, that God promises more than Abraham's personal solutions. He may be the protagonist in this story, but he's not the only one who matters to the Lord. God has important work to do with Sarah on her journey of faith as well. And next week we're going to see that there are many more people involved. These angels are passing by on, on a mission. 
They're going to see something very different from the hospitality that Abraham has shown them. They're going to witness the inhospitable cities down in the valley. That's where Lot and his family live. They've been tagging along on this journey of faith here and there for the past 24 years, but lately they've chosen to walk by sight and not by faith. God's not done with them either. They matter to God. And so what we'll discover in these chapters is that Isaac, the child of promise, will not be born until many other things happen. They have to happen in many other places involving many other people. God is at work in this story involving the Egyptians, the proto-Philistines. Um, he's, he's working with the Canaanite people down in the valley, and he's working with the Semites. He's, he's at work uh, down in that green Jordan Valley, and he's working up on the arid Judean hills. God is at work all over, and somehow all of these stories are interwoven together such that the child of promise will not come. Not when Sarah and Abraham are newlyweds, not when Abraham graduates from Shepherd College, not when he starts out on the journey. The child of promise will not come until they are old, so old that they can't possibly have kids except through a miracle. So old that they're as good as dead. And won't that be a story to tell? Isaac's entire life, then, will be a sign of resurrection. God promises resurrection to all who believe. This is the story of and once again, what's true for Abraham is true for us. God's kingdom come is not my happily ever after or yours. God promises more than just our personal solutions. He's at work making all things new. And sometimes it's just not about us. What's going on? If, if you're on this journey of faith and you keep saying your prayers but God still hasn't delivered, look up and see what he's doing in the lives of those around you. It may not be about you. The apparent delay may have nothing to do with you at all. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you. He does love you. He loves you and he cares for you and he will take care of you and he will keep his promises. But remember that God promises more than just our personal solutions. What he's doing is huge. And that may be why you're feeling unhappy with his timing. But thirdly, we won't always be unhappy with God's timing. Not only does he promise better than our happily ever afters, not only does he promise more than our personal solutions, but most importantly, God promises news of great joy. The big, hairy, audacious goal of what God is doing in these chapters is summarized in the name of the child of promise. He's called Isaac, or laughter. Because that's what God is up to. Right? God promises good news of great joy. He will bring laughter to Abraham and Sarah, and ultimately, through this child, laughter to all the world. It's significant that, Abraham, that, that the angel of the Lord visits Abraham and Sarah in person in Genesis 18, and everything starts to fall into place right after that. This happens to be the eighth time 
that Abraham encounters God in this whole tale, beginning in Genesis chapter 12. Go back and read the story's account. In the Hebrew Bible, the number eight is a very important number. It's the number of surprise. It's the number of resurrection, a new creation. Jewish boys were always circumcised on the eighth day with this in mind. Through circumcision, they were cut off from the fallen world, made in six days, then God rested on the seventh, and then on the eighth day, they are resurrected to become this chosen people through whom God is going to bring a new creation. So on the eighth day of their lives, they passed symbolically from death to resurrection life to become a royal priesthood and a holy nation. It all began with Isaac, with laughter. That's how the chosen people came to be. But of course, there were lots of tears in that long story of Israel. Too many tears. Too, too many of Israel's patriarchs and priests and judges and kings preferred their own little happily ever afters rather than what God intended to do through them. Too many of them came to that crossroads and they turned back and chose not to follow him by faith and remain on the journey with the Lord. So eventually they're carried off into exile, but as we heard in the psalm, those who sow weeping will go out with songs of joy. Their mouths shall be filled with laughter and their tongues with shouts of joy. Isaac, laughter, the child of promise. He's the first of five extraordinary, miraculous children who will come at different times in the Bible story. All are heralded by angels in one way or another. Usually there are lots and lots of cakes made of flour. And usually there are disbelieving parents. Except for the last time, right? The last time of course, it is when the angel of the Lord tells the Virgin Mary that she will conceive a son. And she has faith like a mustard seed, saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so it was. Jesus miraculously conceived, born on the first Christmas, circumcised on the eighth day, a terrible and wonderful sign of what was yet to come. In just a few years, he would be nailed to a tree and then pruned, cut off, so that all who call upon him by faith might be grafted into that vine. We heard it in today's gospel lesson. That tiny little seed planted in the ground has now sprung up to become a great tree. And all the birds from every tribe and tongue and nation come and nest in its branches. Again, Jesus, he's like that little bit of leaven that Sarah put into those three batches of dough. That's what the gospel lesson is heralding back to. She put it in until it was all leavened in order that the bread of life might feed the whole world. It was finished on Good Friday, the sixth day, when Jesus was cut off. God rested on the Sabbath. And then on the eighth day, God's Son was raised to new life, the dawn of a new creation. God promises better than our best happily ever afters. 
God promises so much more than our own personal solutions. And God brings us good news of great joy, laughter. My favorite song through these last several years has become a really ancient one, Fos Hilaron. The hilarious, gladsome light. Oh, gladsome, hilarious light, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven, oh, Jesus Christ, holy and blessed. Now as we come to the setting of the sun and our eyes behold the vesper light, we sing your praises, O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy at all times to be praised by happy voices. O oh, Son of God, giver of life, and to be glorified through all the world.